From the Center for History and New Media at George Mason University, this is Digital Campus, a bi-weekly discussion of how digital media and technology are affecting learning, teaching, and scholarship at colleges, universities, libraries, and museums. This is Digital Campus, episode 117, recorded November 13th, 2015. What can you do with iPads and smartphones? Well, welcome everybody. You have found your way yet again to the Digital Campus podcast on a beautiful fall Friday afternoon, or at least it is on the day that we're recording, episode 117. We're here with the vast majority of our podcast regulars. Uh, we have Dan Cohen. Dan, you're in Boston? I am. Uh, based on what I see out the window, I am in Boston right now. All right. So uh, fall has got to be almost over in Boston, right? You know, it has been uh, our usual kind of 65 degrees every day and sunny uh, November here in uh, Boston. So yeah, that's okay. The big snow is just around the corner. So it's just not going to happen this year, fall, uh, this fall or winter. Okay. We're just going to keep on going at this temperature. Yeah, we're going to check back in on that in uh, February. So <laughs> also in the New England contingent, we have Tom Scheinfeld. Tom? Connecticut. Yeah, yeah. I'm in Connecticut. Yeah, yeah. Got a beautiful day outside. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's probably nice all up and down the East Coast because, Stephen, you're in Fairfax? I am indeed in my office in the center. So that is Stephen Robertson, director of the Center for History and New Media. And uh, I'm Mills Kelly, and I am not far away. I'm closer to the Prince William campus of George Mason University. Um, So today on the podcast, we're going to start off with a discussion of some new hardware items. And Dan, you brought this to our attention that you'd been jonesing for the new iPad Pro. Is that right? Oh, I'm not sure I've been jonesing for it, but uh, I uh, regularly break my iPhone, um, as one does. Uh, I'm a a committed Apple Care uh, purchaser, so I was in Apple, um, a Apple store, uh, getting my broken iPhone uh, fixed, and uh, passed by an iPad Pro, and um, you know, fiddled around with it, and. very interestingly, the um, Apple, um, what are they called? Not the geniuses. I guess they're just, um, they're, they're regular Apple folks. Um, we'll call were, them smarties. The are they call them smarties? Is that what they are? Sort of smart <laughs> people. Uh, I was going to say salesperson, but I'm sure that's incorrect. Anyway, um, was really trying to sell me on this as a replacement for my laptop. And I, because it took forever to actually repair the phone, I actually sat around with it for a bit, um, elbowing off everyone else who wanted a turn on it um, and got to play around with the pencil um, in a little drawing uh, program, uh, which was cool, uh, I have to admit. Um, But mostly was sort of trying to get a feel for if I got one of these little external keyboards, could could I actually replace my laptop? And I've been kind of wondering this for some time because it seems like 
you know, the these things that look like the iPad Pro with the keyboard. So I guess the Microsoft Surface was there before. Um, but the Surface, of course, has, I guess, all of Windows behind it. You can actually, um, you know, snap on a keyboard and still get your, your standard Windows environment with multiple programs running. This iPad is, it's an iPad, and you can have two apps running side by side, which is neat. Um, but you still have to touch the screen. You know, there's no trackpad. Um, and more disturbingly, and I, I would love the, the rest of the panel's take on this, I'm just, I, maybe I'm an old person, but I, I still can't live without the file system and folders. And I, I don't know, am I just an old grumpy person? But it struck me as the actual programs are really neat. The apps like the drawing app were, were definitely cool. I love the retina screen. I've got an older laptop that's still the standard resolution. Um, the keyboard, however, is much better on my laptop than it is on this little uh, dinky, whatever, rubbery key thing. Um, and I, But most of all, I just I don't know if I'll ever be able to give up a windowed environment where I can have many apps running at one time when I can use keyboard commands for almost everything. And again, the salesperson was saying, oh, you know, you can still use those keyboard commands. But I was thinking, I don't think that's really the case. Like, I can't, no. I can't wrap my brain around how I would move to this. And this person was also advocating me moving to the iCloud file system so all my files would be synced across devices and I wouldn't have to worry. I don't, it, is this, like, feasible? Are people going out there and actually like making the transition to this other than you know total apple nerds i it just strikes me as impossible for me well i i feel more or less the same way and i think you know i, I microsoft is i think an instructive example here because microsoft has always been probably to its detriment committed to backwards compatibility both in its software and what you know what it will run on but also sort of in its in its in its uh user interfaces and its and its computing paradigms right and the surface it is both things it can be a tablet and you can use it with a tablet you know full screen interfaces and all that the sort of standard tablet environment kind of ipad like environment or you can snap the keyboard on, right, and Windows pops up, and you've got the familiar taskbar and Windows Start menu, and you know, desktop and and file system and and all of that. Um, and and that's been a pretty successful product for them. I I don't know if I could live without that uh, somehow on the back end. I think that like I think it's interesting that. You can do like the, they'll often say it's like well you can do almost everything you can do on on a on a lap on, on an iPad that you can do on a laptop and it's that it's in that almost where like real productivity occurs I feel like right it's like it's that almost bit it's the things that you can't do that make the, that's where you lose <laughs> the productivity. And so, so I just, and maybe again, right? Like I'm old too. So I don't, I don't, I don't know, but I think, um, for, I, I don't think that for tasks like, so I have actually, here's a, here's a, an example. I have a Chromebook, right? That I use, um, like basically in front of the TV at night 
right? So to do email. And Chromebook is a little like this. You know, it's got a better keyboard, I think, probably than the iPad, but it's a fully cloud-based operating system. It has, it doesn't really have a file system. Um, the apps are, they're a lot like kind of, you know, full-screen tablet phone-based apps um, or web apps. And I can do almost everything that I do on my real laptop on the Chromebook because almost everything, almost all of what I do is things like, you know, I, I work, I work on documents and I can still work on a Google doc. I can work on a, I can work on email. I can do, you know, I can do all of those kinds of things. Um, but when it comes to like, well, definitely when it comes to something like web development, like there's no way, right? Like there's no way I, you know, I need a text editor. I need a file system. I need to be able to cut and paste bits and you know pieces of code and you know have have temporary files around. And so so um, I, I don't see it. Um, I don't see these things ever displacing the the keyboard and the file system totally. I mean maybe they'll maybe maybe eighty percent or eighty five percent is good enough for some people, but I, I just it not won't be for me. And I guess I've been, I kind of agree with all of this, but I've been thinking about what I really use all of my stuff for. And, and my, the biggest impediment to my productivity is being stuck on a single screen. Um, so in that sense, I find working on, you know, just my laptop um, almost as limiting as working on a, in a slightly different way as working on a tablet, you know, and to be really productive, I need to plug my laptop, you know, in here at work and use one of the bigger monitors. Um, and so I find sort of that I'm almost using my my laptop on its own a little less and, and a lot of the times in which I sit there with it on my lap I could probably do almost everything that I'm doing on a tablet um, and uh, so I I certainly couldn't you know I certainly couldn't and I'm a big user of my of, of my existing iPad for that's what I carry around to meetings and to different places rather than my laptop anyway um, and so I, I'm not, I can't see myself being able to do what I need to do just on a tablet. But, but oddly, you know, it, it's, it's some kind of threat maybe to my, you know, my laptop on its own wandering around, um, which I get increasingly frustrated with, you know, trying to manipulate the dozen or so windows that I have open and I'm trying to work through on a, you know, 13-inch screen even. Uh, so... So there's still, you know, for me, there's still definitely two kinds of things in play. But but I do wonder whether that, you know, that, you know, to get two screens, you obviously have to be sitting at a desk um, with those kinds of things going on, and 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 that's one of my workstations. And maybe for the one where I'm carrying things around and thinking what I'm doing in those situations, a tablet maybe does do the job because again, you can do. You know, you can do a bit of work on documents now in a way that you, you couldn't do before. You can do all the email stuff, all the browser-based stuff that, that occupies an enormous chunk of my time. And then there's another level of that, that other percentage of stuff. But, but yeah, for me, that other percentage of stuff is pretty hard to do on a, on a single laptop with a single screen mm. um, anyway. And I don't know really, you know, I don't know that it makes me a tablet convert, but it does make me kind of wonder if... You know, I might it might make more sense for me at some point to trade in the laptop I carry around for a tablet and 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 kind of stay with what I have, you know, on my desk for the other percentage of stuff I do. Yeah, you know, for me, I mean, I, I spend 
way too much time in meetings. Um, and although cut back a lot this year, but the last couple of years, I've spent way too much time in meetings. And I will say that so many of the people in the university administration now use something sort of like the iPad Pro, you know, an iPad with a keyboard attached in a, you know, sort of portfolio that they carry around. And they, they all kind of live in various productivity softwares like Evernote or whatever. Um, and, and so they're, they're constantly using, you know, so really all they're doing is typing notes or responding to emails. And that, for that purpose, you know, a tablet with a keyboard seems fine. Uh, like I don't need a laptop for that. If that's all, I'm, if so, if it's the thing I'm going to wander around with, to from meeting to meeting, well, sure, that would that would be fine. What what I find though is, you know, I do a lot of I do a lot of international travel, and so I spend a fair amount of time on long flights and use those as writing time or you know, editing time or whatever. And and so doing kind of file intensive, sometimes computing intensive work. That you know, I can't, and I can't be in the cloud because I'm not going to pay United Airlines however many million dollars to be online for eight hours. Right. Uh, and so, uh, and so, really, I need a laptop for that kind of work. The other thing, though, and maybe I'm just old and grumpy like Dan, but um, so the like, I'm gonna. Ha- I have so many files, so many things sorted into files that I'm kind of st- in folders that I'm kind of stuck there. Right. See, that's what I'm feeling. It's like the legacy stuff that I have 25 years of computing on my laptop right now. And 54,000 photographs. Right. So like a lot of that stuff is, you know, uh, well, there's some of it could be brought forward, but there's a lot that sort of, you kind of have to know which program and maybe there's some old programs. And that's what I'm trying to figure out. Like if, I think they're going to make a big push push on this iPad Pro to sell it to college students. Um, yeah. And it, you know, next summer uh, with a keyboard and to say, like, it's the best of both worlds. But I think starting a starting college student, you know, probably has Gmail, has, you know, already has cloud-based email, unlike me, who I have all of my email on my laptop, Um and, uh, you know, and probably if you're, again, just starting out, you, you can use the iCloud storage if you at least trust Apple um, and that, your i, i what is it, uh, iPhoto cloud library. I can't even remember what long series of words um, are put together to get the right thing for that. But, uh, you know, I guess if you started out 100% this way, um, it would be easier. But I think, Mills, like you're saying, it's just we've got too much legacy stuff that we still access you know the one other thing i'll say about this is the the i think you're right Stephen. like when i'm at work i mean most of my work is done i mean my laptop is sort of in the corner of my desk you know just kind of over there and i'm working on a giant screen um so it really doesn't matter it's really just powering a big screen and a key and an external keyboard um, but the other place that I really do use the laptop, other than so so right, so like Mill says, meetings, um, and and I think you're right. In meetings, I probably could handle a, uh, a an iPad Pro with a keyboard. Um, the other place, though, is conferences, and there's really something to be said for the clamshell form factor, where like it really sits on your lap, and like having a having a rigid hinge. Like that, like keeps the screen up um, while you're taking notes on your lap uh, at a conference. Um, there's something to be said for that, and I don't know how 
Good. I know I've heard complaints about the Microsoft Surface as being, you know, like not quite lappable. Um, yeah, so the, the iPad Pro, I, 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 in fact, investigated this, and I just don't think it's, like, lappable. And I think what you have to do is you, at that point, you just disconnect the keyboard, and you've got an iPad in your lap. And then the question is, can you really use the screen keyboard? And yeah. I've, I've still, again, like, maybe this is just, I'm old, but I've never gotten used to typing on glass as fast as I can touch type, and... Um, I don't know, maybe, you know, my kids, like, they'll feel totally comfortable on this, but um, I just feel like it's it's a strange sort of neither here nor there, and these, there's so many cases that, like you said, uh, several people have said, you know, like the 20% of the use where you really miss the laptop. Yeah, right, and that's where, and that's where I think, like, the real work gets done. It's like, it's like the, the 20% of your work that's not email is, like, the actual work, <laughs> Right, that's the important work. Right, exactly. Um, <laughs> right, you browsing the web, like that's you know goofing off, like being on Tweetbot, that's goofing right. off, and then you're you're really cranking out, um, like cutting and pasting is a really good example. I mean, yeah. just inserting, like you're so much faster with a mouse than you are with your finger having to lift up, go to the screen, do that little thing where you're roughly finding the spot and then right. selecting you know, and text like selecting select text and then, like even repeated um you know pace it's so fast on a keyboard just hitting those things and again feel yes that like there's pieces of that that carry over to this ipad keyboard but i but um it just i don't think it's all there and i i don't see how they can solve it either um uh, in that way. Yeah, and I, I think you really to, you to hit the the key issue, which is the lack of a something like a mouse and you know some kind of trackpad or something that allows you to manipulate things more easily. Um, you know, I my wife's a, a realtor now, and so she uses a tablet when she's out in the field now to show people like the next listing that they're thinking of going to, and that so that feature that's great, right? But but she also has to have her laptop around because they do all this electronic signing of documents now, and and so she's probably going to go to a Surface shortly because then people can actually sign on the screen of the Surface. Um, but she also has to make amendments to these these contracts where she's like you know striking through text. And we tried it with a with a tablet, and it was just way too much of a pain. And and so where with a mouse it works fine. It's very efficient, very quick. You don't miss with your finger, you know. It just works. So I think this is possibly a little over-engineered. Um, on the under-engineered end of the spectrum, there are things like made out of cardboard now. Is this true? You mean like boxes? Yeah. It's like I heard like some Google Cardboard thing. Am I the only one that got a Google Cardboard with their... Sort of with their Sunday Times. No, I got one too. I got one too. Wow, Stephen, you got one as well. Back to the Future, cardboard computing. I love it. What is this thing? When I first heard about Google Cardboard, which was before this New York Times thing, um, like a, like a while ago, I, I actually thought it was like one of Google's like April Fool's jokes. Right, me too. Like our new like <laughs> our new big virtual reality technology is Google a cardboard box. Like you know, it's like it's like you know, it's like a camera obscura or something, right? Like this is our <laughs> this is our new big invention. Um, 
but no, yeah, it is, it is, it is the, the hot thing, um, in journalism these days. Do you, do you think it's, I mean, is the whole point of this to be so cheap that the times can send out a million of these for like probably a buck a piece or something like that To I mean, this must've still cost them some money. They do have two little, I guess, glass or maybe they're plastic inserts for the eyes. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it's, um, right. I mean, it's, it's, you've got like in virtual reality. So, so we should explain that, that this is a, uh, uh, the Google cardboard is, it is a, a, a box, um, which acts as, um, uh, a, a lens and it, and it, and it, keeps your your eyes in the box right so you can't see whatever's outside the box what you do is you you slip your 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 phone uh into the back of the box and it creates a kind of virtual and you download an app and then that app creates within this within the space of the box a virtual reality um environment um so you know i think it's 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 the sort of opposite of the strategy of the Oculus Rift, which Facebook bought, I don't know, I guess about a year ago for like a billion dollars, um, which is a really, really high-end virtual reality headset. You know, it's a, like a helmet that you put on and, and your eyes, you know, it goes around your eyes and, and it kind of immerses you in a, in a virtual reality uh, environment. This is, this is like, like the, 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 the low-end the dime store version. The dime store, but but the you know the 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 good enough version of that you know eight hundred dollar uh, Oculus Rift headset. Yeah, and that's a clever idea. I mean, people have smartphones now, and so this gives you a way to get a kind of cheap virtual reality experience. So so does it also like are there apps that connect to the phone the the camera in my phone? So like I could put my phone in one of those, put it in front of my face call up Google Maps and then figure out where to drive while I'm driving? Oh my gosh. I think we're getting ahead of ourselves here. <laughs> <laughs> Evidently, there, there, there is a way I, I, because my kids were um, really like kind of blown away by the New York Times um, little virtual reality movie about this uh, French artist, J.R., who uh, currently he has a giant... Uh, vinyl painting on the side of the the giant glass John Hancock building in downtown uh, Boston. But before that, he did a giant, um, uh, you know, again, sort of like an applique on New York City streets um, near the Flatiron building. And uh, um, it's of a person walking, but you can only see it from the air. And they have this short video. If you haven't um, done this yet, with or go borrow someone's Google Cardboard and get a smartphone and download the New York Times virtual reality app. It's a separate app from the uh, New York Times app. And uh, anyway, at the end of that little film, they take you up in a helicopter with uh, the artist. And as he's um, taking a photo of his art from the air, just hovering over it, and you, you can literally like look down if you're okay with that. <laughs> and and uh, it's, it's really the first time that I've gotten like that real like vertigo of, wow, this is, this is actually kind of neat. And um, it was 360 degrees. So you could look around at all the skyscrapers. Um, so that was, that was pretty cool. And um, the times today actually we're recording on Friday the 13th um, of November. Uh, and uh, they have a, a piece on other, 
uh, apps and other little movies that you can access that do similar sorts of things. So um, I guess that they, they have some kind of globe that has video cameras on all, you know, all sides of it, 360. Um, and uh, as long as you film with that, you can then put it into an app that then allows you to use this Google Cardboard. So it seems like it, it's sort of pushing it a little bit more toward, you know, consumer grade um, from professional grade uh, and um, be interesting to see what people do with it. And there are, I mean, there are, I think, you can imagine applications for digital humanities um, for this kind of technology. I mean, I have oh, questions. Totally. About, yeah, I mean, I, mean, I have the questions the re, about all the recreation. Yeah. Projects. I mean, yeah. You know, the Rome, your Rome Reborn, your you know any three D modeling, right, right, um, and I any, assume, yeah, and and like so so I'm I've been talking to um, uh, a game design professor in in our department, Ken Bowen, and he's um, got ideas for a project. We at UConn have a um, have uh, the the Thomas J. Dodd Research Center, which is our archives and human rights center. Um, the Thomas Dodd was the 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 um, head of the International Military Tribunal after the Second World War, and he uh, had all of his papers are are at UConn. So there's this big collection of papers from the IMT uh, at at UConn, and Ken has been talking to our 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 special collections librarian Greg Kaladi about a project that would put you with a headset like this would put you in the courtroom. Um, and would use those document collections so that you could actually look around the courtroom and bring up documents about different people in the courtroom, judges, you know, the accused, lawyers, others, things that they had written or things that they had that were written about them. And you could, it would be a, a way to browse a collection of archival documents um, spatially as opposed to through a finding aid or, 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 or um, with the help of an archivist. So, I mean, you can imagine interesting things like that. Um, uh, but I, I do think, um, you know, I think we're, we're still a, a little ways off. And I, I do worry um, in some ways about these kinds of projects where there's, you know, there's, there's a kind of whiz-bang coolness to them. But, you know, we when we first started this podcast, we were talking about, Second Life, and we talked an awful lot about Second, Second Life, right? And yeah. Second Life, you know, it, it never happened, and it always, you know, virtu virtual reality seems like it's always the next big thing, um, and, you know, maybe this time it is, but uh, I, I will withhold uh, judgment. It's like what they say about cold fusion, it is and always will be the energy source of the future. Right. Yeah, um, you know, we've got a whole bunch of these uh, in the Digital Public Library of America from our contributing partners. We have these uh, stereoscopic yeah, uh, archival materials. Yeah. And if, if you actually pull the phone out of the Google Cardboard during one of these movies, you see that essentially what it is is this, you it's know, a stereoscope. it's yeah. an 1890s stereoscope. It's just in color and it moves. And uh, um, I, I'm really intrigued to see if we can write an app at DPLA to... Um, essentially put put into these things, um, you know, these old views of some of these uh, these photographs that are stereoscopic. Um, I don't know if it'll work, uh, but it'd be neat to try. Well, the cardboard reminds me of something I had when I was a kid. You guys probably saw these. You know, it had like a photo wheel and a little lever that you pulled down and advanced oh, the photos. 
What were those called? I can't remember now. But it looked, oh, yeah. it looked like the cardboard. So view, view, view. Yeah, I had one as well. Um, yeah. See, Stephen and I are old enough that we had view one. something. View, yeah. view master, something like view that. Master, view master. View master. Yeah, um, that's right. We'll have yeah. to do a little research. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, but this, you know, going from the the expensive the iPad Pro to the super cheap the um, you know Google cardboard. Yeah, it reminds me that there was a piece in the New York Times just now, like 10 days ago, about um, growing digital inequality and what this means, in, especially in education. But I think it has broader implications for, you know, for museums and libraries and everybody. And that is that as th- there are so many assumptions in the world about who has access to the Internet, you know, and we assume that, that students all have instant access to the Internet. And it's just, you know, this time story points out it's just not the case. And um, and that this that so many children in the United States don't have any kind of access online. Um, you know, just to be on my soapbox for a minute, it's you know, forty-eight percent of all public school children in the US live in poverty. So some big chunk of those kids don't have internet access at home, but their school teachers are assigning them uh, homework online on the assumption that, well, of course they can be online at home when they can't actually. And this, this has huge, the time story doesn't go into it much, but it has huge implications for public libraries in particular. Stephen, um, you know, you've, you have conversations about public libraries at home. Has, has, uh, has, have those ever covered, um, you know, the, the, the fact that they've become points of access to the internet for kids? But it, I mean, they have to the extent that uh, yeah, my, my my wife's just started work at a brand new library that opened only a few weeks ago, and instantly they were deluged with teenagers camping out doing homework from the moment that school finished. Um, in a way that I think is all about this. Um, I mean, in some ways, this this there's an obvious connection back to to our our Google Cardboard that we were talking about, and and that this is about what you can and can't do on a phone. Um, and the time story, you know, is talking about the the greater prevalence of of smartphones as the technology in the hands of um, lower income households without computers, and what you can and can't do on a phone, which is you know another subset of what you can and can't do on a tablet. Um, and you know, and the numbers are showing that more of the you know more of these people without laptops are relying on smartphones and tablets and therefore they're struggling with that percentage of things that you can't you can't do on either that we're talking about and 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 where that sends people um which is both you know to the library both for the actual machines the desktop machines and also often for the free wireless internet which is you know in the end one of the the very you know most powerful things that that our public libraries are offering to a, to a lot of the teenagers in particular is, is access to either one of those things depending on on what their technology is and in a way that does even in places like where we live in um, Virginia where you, the internet access is far more widely available than it is in a lot of other parts of the country this is still libraries are still a necessary place for people to go and, and so in some ways you know the what you can or can't do on a tablet. The fact that Google Cardboard is phone-based, um, one way or another, that we need to be thinking a little bit more about what people can do on that subset of devices in terms of the expectations about about what can be done in classrooms or, or not done in classrooms. Um, you know, 
we talked about feeling old, that in fact maybe these devices in, in, in an app-based environment is simply something that we're you know not going to be part of and are tied by our legacies to, to something different. But there's also an element of lack of choice in this, that, that these are the devices that remain most available and most accessible. And, and and that has to be part of the discussion about what we imagine people using and what we imagine teenagers doing. You can't writing a paper on a phone is is kind of a crazy notion, but you know that's part of one of the examples that this time story is talking about as as the reality of people who have to use technology when they can't get into a library, as a lot of them are doing. And as much as this is, and Dan knows much more about this in generalizable terms than I do, but, you know, computers are a big part of what public libraries offer, but not on a scale that makes up for the kind of technological gaps that um, that, that we're talking about in these studies. Yeah, because if you're, if you're a poor family and you have to make a choice between purchasing a computing device or a phone, a smartphone, I think the smartphone wins 98 times out of 100. Absolutely, and if you go one more device up, it's going to be a tablet that could, you know that gives and you so, a slightly. And so I know screen. I've changed my syllabi so that they now say you have the section on laptops. I'm one of those professors who wants my students to bring electronic devices to class, as opposed to being one of those professors who still tells them, "No, you may not." Um, but the but it now my syllabi now say, if your phone is your primary access point to the internet, please just let me know that. So I won't think that you're texting your friends while you're taking notes. And I have this semester in, uh, in a course that Dan will remember, History 390. Um, I have So I have 44 students, and I have six students who are taking notes in class on their phone. That's really interesting. You know, it's uh, I read through the, the uh, Common Sense Media report on uh, device adoption and uh, was particularly paying attention to the low-income Households um, at DPLA, we are doing a project with the White House uh, and many others um, to uh, try to, um, you know, bridge this gap, and especially around eBooks, to try to get them in, into more low-income families. And um, we already had some data around this, but the Common Sense Media report really emphasizes there, there's actually pretty significant smartphone adoption even in low-income families, um, and even among kids. So. 51%, um, so just over half of the teenagers in low-income families have large-format smartphones, um, not feature phones, but actual smartphones at this point. And I think this is one of these stories that a lot of people haven't caught up to. And I think, uh, frankly, here, um, you know, we talked about Apple earlier, but I think we do need to give credit to Google and Android for um, essentially creating you know, a free operating system that can go on inexpensive devices. And right. 48%... 48% of tweeners, so ages 8 to 12 in those households, have access to a tablet. And I assume that most of those are very inexpensive um, uh, uh, Android tablets or Android-based tablets. Um, so this is a real story now. Um, what's amazing is if you square these stats with the ones that uh, the Pew Internet Survey has done, um, what you find is, knows exactly what you said, which is that uh, these low-income families are, in fact, adopting smartphones. Not, you know, They're not at the 90% rate of high-income families, but they're quickly catching up, and yet they do not have access at home to broadband and to computers. And everything that we were just discussing at the top of the podcast, laptops, desktops, um, they're, they're moving straight to a device uh, like a smartphone 
uh, or a tablet. Uh, and um, for those, in a lot of cases, it means they really do need access to bandwidth. And uh, we do know from, um, you know, from my personal experience working uh, in the Boston Public Library, um, you know, everyone comes in in the morning and runs straight to the computers. We know there's a big segment of people doing that, and then the Wi-Fi is really critical uh, for the rest who come in to download things. And uh, so that's a, it's really a key piece of infrastructure, and I think it's something that we need to pay more attention to. Um, I think we discussed on a prior podcast some of the changes to this E-rate program, which is an FCC program. It's a really big FCC program. Uh, it's going to be $3 billion um, in 2016, and it's to, in fact, supplement uh, broadband access um, for uh, libraries, public libraries, uh, schools uh, as well. In fact, most of the money, 90%, goes to schools, but um, a big chunk does go to public libraries, and they're trying to up the capacity of those pipes uh, and the Wi-Fi within those buildings because they know that um, somewhere around 19 or 20% of people get primary access to the Internet through um, a public library in the United States, and it's all those families that we're talking about. So um, I think this is really worth paying attention to, both the device revolution and the real need for uh, greater access to Wi-Fi in those communities. Yeah, and in today's Washington Post, there's a story about the Fairfax County Public Library. Fairfax County, the largest and richest county in Virginia, uh, the Fairfax County Public Library system has has failed their search for a new executive director of the entire system. Just couldn't hire anybody, and you know their last candidate pulled out. And the main reason seems to be that the libraries are facing significant budget cuts on top of multiple years of significant budget cuts. And so, if the public libraries are getting cut. Uh, and the cuts are largely, I think, from the story anyway, uh, based on the premise that, well, who reads books anymore? And that's sort of really common sense. Everybody knows that. Books are over. Um, and so um, and so, what do we need libraries for? Well, in fact, what we need libraries for are all the things that, that Dan just said. So, um, But I think this is one we're going to have to – a story we're going to have to keep close track of um, because it is going to have such a big effect on, on the public library systems around the country um, we have uh, just two other items on our agenda today, kind of short items. Uh, the first of those, I'm just going to do this as a brief, since you can now do Twitter polls, I see. Uh, we're going to do our own little in-house Twitter poll, um, and it's a simple poll. It has two options. Are you a fave guy or a heart guy? So, Tom, fave or heart on Twitter? Uh, Don't think about it. Just answer. I, I guess favorite. I guess favorite. Steven? I'm definitely a fave. Okay. Dan? I'm a misanthrope, so I'm going with hate. Um, but second, my second choice is fave. Fave. And, you know, I didn't even notice that there was a difference. That's just how close attention I pay. And I didn't even notice that, that it was different. So I'm a, I, guess, I guess I'm a heart guy because I just didn't even notice. So, so, so this is why I hesitated because I, I, I don't, I guess I have, I, I suppose I haven't thought about this deeply enough. Um, can someone explain to me, I, I've seen the controversy, right? I've seen people outraged by this heart thing, um, versus the star thing. Can somebody just explain to me what, why people are so upset about it? I, I, I can probably well, guess, but well, I can't. I, I didn't, even, like I said, I didn't even notice that it was different. So clearly, I can't. 
I think the problem is, um, Tom, that it's retroactive. So, um, you know, I used Fave, really when I started off using Faves, it was not really about favorites. It was more a bookmark. Uh, and it was the only mechanism for me to do that. And I think that as with everything with Twitter and any changes to Twitter, it's like the people who've been around the longest on Twitter. Um, and if you remember correctly, you were on like a year before me and I was, I thought it was the stupidest thing ever. Yeah. Um, and, um, but still now in the relative scheme of things, you know, like I'm, an, I'm one of the early yeah, old timer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think I think there were, and then especially journalists, of course, and this is why I probably got a lot of journalism around it. Journalists have been on it for a long time too, and you know there are multiple reasons to use the fave, and um, it kind of contained those many different meanings. Um, but a heart is a heart, and well, when you make it a when you, you make it a like, then it's like yeah, and if you if you're, you're you know, like a, a, a moral balance on exactly this. exactly and i'm actually i wouldn't be surprised if some enterprising um you know opposition research like you know primary republican campaign went back and um took what used to be a fave <laughs> and then takes a screen capture of it with that and it's not just a heart it's like a nice ruby heart like it's got a lot of love in that heart it, graphically if you look at it and you know um just like journalists were complaining that some of their faves were things like you know isis propaganda that they had to fave because they needed to save it for stories like and hillary people, clinton faved an, an isis yeah no they love it they love right? <laughs> they love that 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 isis tweet and so I think in that, the fact that it, it like retroactively changes it, um, is, it is kind of a problem. But again, I think most people have adopted relatively recently, although maybe not Twitter's kind of solved that. But I think that's probably what annoyed a lot of people. Um, you know, I'm just continuing to use it as I've used it before, but it is a little bit awkward. Well, speak, speaking as the first member of the podcast who have adopted Twitter, um, no, uh, I mean the last member of the podcast. Who no, no, I adopted it way after you. Yeah, yeah. Right. Oh, yeah? Oh, that's even better. Yeah, not was hard so, here. I feel so much better. Um, so, yeah, I... Uh, I think I think it's evidence that it was a really slow news week on Twitter. Um, so the final thing, and this is really just a shout out um, to the United States government's Department of Health and Human Services. Um, I think every historian in the United States is probably happy to know that um, the new rulings about institutional review boards exempt. Uh, Dan, you said it was both. Um, both oral history and oh, and journalism. Yeah. So here's the so so it's 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 not quite it's not quite um, uh, uh, a dumb deal yet. But the the HSS put out a notice of proposed rulemaking, which basically is there. They give a they give a comment period. They say like we're about to issue these rules. If you have any problem with it, like let us know. And they have some hearings, and and then the rules take effect. So. Unless there's, you know, some problem, these rules will take effect. Um, and the new rules um, exclude. So, and that's different from exempt, right? So uh, they, it's better. Right? They exclude, and here are the categories, oral history, journalism, biography, and historical scholarship activities that focus directly on specific individuals about whom the information is collected. 
Um, so they exclude those areas of research from the purview of the IRB, the Institutional Review Board. That means if you're doing an or if you're a graduate student and you're doing an oral history project, or even if it's not an oral history project, even if you're just going to interview a couple of people um, about their experiences. Um, Whereas previously, you would have had to go through the IRB and get approval for this research or, or possibly have the research denied or have your methodologies questioned or whatever. Um, now you can just, you, you don't, it's not that, the, it's not that the, 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 the Institutional Review Board has to approve it. It's that they don't even have jurisdiction over it anymore. So, so you don't I even have to tell them that you're doing it, which is what we've, example. I think, been fighting for, for for a long time. I can give you the perfect example. Years ago, I was the second reader on a dissertation in our conflict resolution program. Uh, a brilliant young PhD student um, had, was wrote her dissertation about um, female peace activists in Milosevic-era Serbia. And so a pretty scary place to be if you were a peace activist. And in the 90s. And so she had arranged, first of all, she'd learned Serbian, spent two years learning Serbian so she could do her interviews. And then she had arranged 65 interviews with members of the Women in Black, this peace activist organization in Belgrade and around Serbia. And, and so she had, she had submitted all her IRB stuff and she'd flown up to Belgrade and then she got the note from George Mason's IRB telling her that, that she could not proceed with her interviews because in interviewing these women, she would be putting them at substantial risk of harm. And, and I had to write to the IRB on her. She sent me this panicky email, what am I going to do? And I had to write to the George Mason IRB and say, excuse me, but these are women who lived with the threat of imminent death for a decade for their peace activism. They are able to calculate their risk of personal harm to a degree that no one sitting in an office in Fairfax, Virginia can ever imagine. So if they are willing to allow an American graduate student to, actually she was an Israeli, so a George Mason graduate student, to interview them, then, then they know what they're doing. So just let her do the interviews, and they relented and, and did. But just the very fact that they would say that is evidence of the, is why this, not just exemption, but exclusion is so important. So, so you go, HHS. We, we love you for this. Every historian in the world loves you for this. And um, we'll hope that in the rulemaking there aren't any changes. Um, so thanks, guys, for your participation today. Uh, another great podcast. Great to talk with you all. Um, thanks, everybody listening, and stay tuned in two weeks for another edition of Digital Campus. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself, fear itself. Fear itself. Please visit us online at digitalcampus.tv where you can join in the discussion and let us know about stories and issues you would like us to cover on future episodes. Mike O'Malley wrote our theme music. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do.